Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Uju, welcome to Club Book with Angeline Boley. Um, I'm Marcy Rendon, um, White Earth Ojibwe from Minneapolis, and also an author and a friend of Angeline's. Before I introduce tonight's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing her to us. Club Book is a program of MALSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Dakota County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. We want to thank the bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Our guest tonight, Angeline Boley, is a member of the Sault Ste. Marie Tribe of Ojibwe Indians and former director of the Office of Indian Education at the United States Department of Education. Her upbringing and firsthand knowledge of Native life informed Boley's blockbuster YA debut, Firekeeper's Daughter. The instant number one New York Times bestseller centers around Donis Fontaine, a biracial Anishinaabe teenager described by the author as an indigenous Nancy Drew. Fontaine finds herself part of an undercover FBI operation to root out the source of a lethal narcotic ravaging the Ojibwe reservations in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. In a starred review, Publishers Weekly praises the novel for its treatment of hard issues such as citizenship, language revitalization, and the chorus, corrosive <laughs> presence of drugs on Native communities. Higher Ground, the production company of Barack and Michelle Obama, is currently adapting Firekeeper's Daughter for a series on Netflix. Um, We'll visit with Angeline, Angeline, and then we'll have time for um, audience question and answer. You can um, drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you'd prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message clubbook here on Facebook, or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Angeline, hi. hi. <laughs> that was a mouthful. <laughs> that was. <laughs> wow. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here with you tonight, Marcy, and congratulations. I just came from uh, the event honoring you, um, uh, the recipient of the McKnight Award, and uh, kudos to you. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was an honor and it was very moving and i'm thrilled yes. that so many of my really good friends showed up and were able this whole pandemic thing is made in-person things kind of a thing of the past seems like i agree i agree 
So do you want to say a little bit more about who you are and your writing, you know, the trajectory of your writing before I dive into the questions that I have? Sure. Okay, well, um, Uju Anin, Antoine Bullin, Adeshikas, Makwadotam, Bawating and Donjaba, Chi Um, Hello, everyone. I'm Antoline Bully of uh, Bear Clan, and I am from uh, Sault Ste. Marie and Sugar Island um, in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And it's an honor to be here with you today. Uh, I'm going to start with a very short reading, uh, probably about two minutes, <laughs> three minutes tops. Um, I like to start this, uh, it's chapter two, it's the beginning of chapter two, and I like it because of the interaction with um, that Donis has um, and the love she has for her best friend Lily and Granny June, uh, Lily's Granny June. So, okay, chapter two. Lily's Jeep screeches into the driveway. Wearing all black as usual, my best friend hops out so I can climb into the back seat. Granny June sits in the front, headscarf tied under her chin, dark brown eyes barely peeking over the dashboard. Between tiny Lily and her great-grandmother, it's a wonder either can see the road. Lily's been my best friend since sixth grade when she came to live with Granny June. We look like opposites and not just because of our height difference. I am so pale, the other niche kids called me ghost. And I once overheard someone refer to me as that washed out sister of Levi's. When Lily lived with her Jagannash dad and his wife, they kept her out of the sun so her reddish brown skin wouldn't get any darker. We both learned early on that there is an acceptable Anishinaabe skin tone continuum and those who land on its outer edges have to put up with different versions of the same BS. Lily's smile is outlined in glossy black lipstick. It grows wider as she takes in my outfit, jeans paired with one of my dad's hockey jerseys extending to mid-thigh. Lady Donis in her finest gown, it's my pleasure to drive thee, she bows. I grin and it feels like when I slip off a backpack loaded with all my school books. I should sit back there, too much work for you. Granny June says, watching as I flip the driver's seat forward and wedge my nearly six foot tall frame into the back. It's like seeing a baby crawl back into the womb. She says this every time we both hitch a ride with Lily. No way, Granny June, you're the best co-pilot. You do not make an elder accommodate you. You just don't. All right. Beautiful, beautiful. So um, in your author's notes, you say, it is paramount to share and, and celebrate what justice and healing looks like in a tribal community. Um, can you elaborate on how you do that in your storytelling and in Donna's journey? Um, uh, yes, great question. I would say that um, how I do that is showing the um, caring, the relationships, the bonds between people. Um, uh, there's an interaction with Donis and I would say like her hockey nemesis, uh, Macy. And there's a point in the story when Donis warns Macy about something. And, um, you know, this is a person she doesn't like, but there's that bond of looking out and protecting um, her as an indigenous woman. So, um, I looked for opportunities to show things that I've experienced, you know, whisper networks, um, ways in which women support one another, um, ceremonies, uh, and, and other forms of um, justice, uh, you know, those aunties and grandmas that at times will take matters into their own hands. Um, and, and so I just wanted to tell a story that just felt very um, true to what I know. Okay. And Donna's, um, you know, there, there are so many like subtle details of that story in, in your story. I guess that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, this next question I've, I've kind of taken, it's, I hope I'm not, um, what do they call that? Like, 
jumping teapots yet. <laughs> giving away a spoiler mm, mm. it's on, on page 236 <laughs> you write and i've pulled a passage out um where you wrote i have wanted ever since i understood that about being in and this is donna's um I have wanted this ever since I understood that being Anishinaabe and being an enrolled citizen weren't necessarily the same thing. My mind races, remembering Granny's unsuccessful efforts to get this for Lily. I can't become a member, except it changes nothing about me. I am Anishinaabe since my first breath, even before, when my new spirit traveled here, I will be Anishinaabe even when my heart stops beating and I journey to the next world. So, I mean, there is so much packed in that, you know, that short passage. Um, there, you know, there's teachings, there's Anishinaabe teachings, there's the history, um, there's, there's the longing that's so prevalent in contemporary native communities, you know, that that's a result of so much dislocation. And then there's also about the, the welcoming of those who want to come home. Um, so, the, you know, it's like, how did you all get that into one little succinct piece? And um, yeah, how did you, what was your thinking process or the writing process of, it's kind of like your, giving something to us as native people but you're also like telling our story in a way that other people can get an understanding of who we are yes um, i just want to hear more about yeah watch for that so that comes at a point in the story donna's who's grown up unenrolled in her tribe uh because her father was not put on her birth certificate um and uh, the complications of that. And I've worked in different tribal communities and I've, I've worked in DC. I've, I've traveled a lot and been in different communities and each tribe, you know, has the sovereign right to determine uh, membership, uh, citizenship for their, for their tribe. And I just, there are so many people though that fall between the cracks. Um, enrollment is not a perfect system, no matter what tribe you're in. And I guess I just wanted to speak to that because I saw the impacts on students. I saw students who, um, you know, if their tribe sponsored a special activity and they, you know, just, and they went to the tribes after school program of that feeling of, well, can I go to that event too? Or is that only for members of, of this tribe? And, you know, and just our, our, our kids are dealing with um, issues of belonging anyway. And so to add enrollment, blood quantum, colorism, um, microaggressions, like all of these things are this additional burden and our kids have to, this is why I loved writing it as a young adult story is because with young adults, so much of the themes are um, claiming your identity and finding your place in your community. And that's very much what Donis's journey is about. Uh, it's dressed up like a thriller, but at its heart, it's this coming of age uh, story that I felt a lot of indigenous uh, teens might relate to parts of it. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to include other things like, you know, her friend Lily being a darker skinned native and facing other struggles and not being able to be enrolled for some like really technical reasons. And um, so I, I just wanted it out there as something that we could discuss and just that awareness that our, our, our teens, our kids are all too aware of the whole belonging and not belonging. And my hope is that teens claim their identity and um because i think once you do that it um helps it helps you navigate the world i think it's also a place in the in that whole storyline where teenagers across the board are are wanting 
they're either wanting to belong or they want to like, yeah, get me over here. <laughs> and so I, it, it seems like it's a, um, something that can speak to all teenagers, not just native teenagers. Mm -hmm. Are you thinking about that when you were writing or is that just sort of what happened? Well, I just knew that, you know, how Donis um, uh, has this thinking of, you know, there's hockey world and regular world. Uh, there's her uh, Ojibwe family on her father's side and there's her, you know, Jagannath side on her mother's side mm -hmm. and um, science world and all these different ways that Donis has learned to cope she splits her identity into these different things and she knows when it's safe to be this and when it's safe to be this and um and really she comes into her power her strength when she melds everything together and accepts every part of her and uh that that um you know integrating all these parts facets of her yeah um, yeah so yeah, I thought that would be a good um, journey for teens of any uh, background to relate to. Okay, and like you said, this is a what a thriller. Wait, no, you said it's a, a coming, coming of age story dressed up like a thriller. <laughs> okay, um, and so which kind of brings me to this next question about. Your book covers some of the jurisdictional issues faced in Indian country. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a bit, you know, just the um, different jurisdictional issues. And I know that, you know, like the stories about Donis and crime on the reservation and FBI involvement and undercover work and I'm not sure, and I, I honestly think that most people don't know anything really about the, the difficulties of jurors, not, not just difficulties, that's the wrong word. These the obstacles to justice. Yes. That impact our communities in ways that most people don't know about or aren't aware of that you know, whether or not the perpetrator is native, whether or not the victim is native, um, mm -hmm. whether or not it happens on federal land or tribal um, land, um, and whether it happens off. And a lot of our tribes have, you know, that checkerboard jurisdiction where the tribe owns this part of land, they own this part of land, they own this, but they don't own it all contiguous. And so, um, you know, in the case of the crime, one of the crimes that happens in the story, it's a matter of the crime happened um, at the tribal uh, hotel. And um, because of that, the uh, federal government has jurisdiction over uh, whether or not to prosecute. And that's why so many of our um, community members do not get justice. They do not get their day in court. Um, and my book talks a little bit about the other ways that we try to get justice um, and other books like uh, David Heska Wandley Waden, uh, his uh, Winter Counts, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, also talks about this like vigilante type system. And, you know, these, you know, these things come up because justice denied um, uh people will people will seek justice on their own when they feel they have no other avenues so the the book is a ya novel and so i'm just wondering how much research and what kind of research did you have to do in order to get this information across to those readers yeah i mean that's a big jump in my mind as a writer <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah well i um had some really good connections throughout indian country um one of my best sources was a retired fbi agent named walt lamar and you know he's uh blackfeet 
And once we established trust, like I, I could ask him anything and he's so forthcoming with, he's got so many interesting stories. He needs to write a book. And, um, you know, I had other uh, contacts and one of the connections just out of the blue, you know, I was at some city meeting in Sault Ste. Marie and went out to dinner with some people and I sat next to this Lake State professor and he was a former uh, state trooper. And I was talking about my book because I always talked about, oh, I'm writing this book. And uh, he was really intrigued by it. And he said, there's a workshop coming up on meth, um, oh. you know, making meth and identifying clandestine meth labs. And he said, if I could get a, if I could make arrangements, would you want to go to the state police academy and attend this workshop? I mean, I was like, of course I will. I would gladly burn eight hours of vacation leave to hightail it down to Lansing and, and go to this. And and so, yeah, just um, exhaustive research. Um, that's, I, I mean, when you're a writer and you get down those, we call them rabbit holes, you're on the internet and you're looking for this and then you, yeah you end up knowing so much about things that might not even make it into the book but it's all part of the it's all part of the process so do you have a particular thing that didn't get it in that didn't get into the book that you thought oh i wanted that in there and then couldn't get it in oh gosh i'd really be hard pressed to think of um something okay. that didn't there were some things about the language um, that I just, you know, that got, you know, that I edited out. Um, so about the Ojibwe yeah. language. Mm -hmm. um, and why did you edit them out? Oh, I think it was um, like in the story, there were, I mean, I was pushing 500 pages, and so there were things that I was looking to streamline. Um, but I feel very good about the Anishinaabe Moen that is included in the story. Um, I purposely did not have a glossary. Um, I did that because I wrote the story in first person um, present tense point of view. You're, the reader is inside Donis's head as things are happening. And because she was, um, she knows her language and, and cultural teachings, uh, thanks to Aunt Teddy and other firekeeper relatives, um, our language is just how she views the world. And so, um, you know, that's why I didn't italicize because it's not a foreign language and I didn't want a glossary. I just thought if I did a good enough job um, as a writer, that the reader would be able to glean the meanings of things. Mm -hmm. I will say one thing I wish I had done, and I could still do it, is um, I'd love to do a bookmark and have like a um, Anishinaabe Moen pronunciation guide for, to help people. And so I, you know, I'll, maybe I'll work on that and send that out like people on my uh, author newsletter list. Um, so. And where did the character Donis come from? Like, how did she arrive for you? Um, different writers have different ways of getting at. Yeah. Originally, she started out a lot like me, um, light-skinned Ojibwe girl. And, um, and then the more drafts that I got into it, I guess the stronger she became and the more independent she was of me. And so she's better in science and math than I could ever be. And I've never played hockey a day in my life. And so it was just uh, that confidence that her character really spoke to me. And um, and I was confident that she, that she could be very different from me and um i could still write her experience um so yeah that's yep well i know that you've i've heard you talk before and i've read a couple interviews and where you said that you have been working on this story since high school or that's <laughs> when the idea first came yes. to you. so maybe do you want to okay. talk okay. about that a bit <laughs> 
Well, I was 18 and I was a senior in high school. And one of my friends went to a different, a nearby school, high school. She told me about a new guy, senior year. She thought he was my type. It turned out he was not. Um, he didn't play sports and um, he hung out with all the partiers. Well, flash forward right before graduation, evidently there was a drug bust and it turned out that that new guy had been an undercover cop and they had a school assembly and he spoke to the students and said, you know, like what he had done. Um, and I remembered thinking, you know, what if we had met? What if we liked each other? And then I thought, what if it wasn't that he liked me, but that he needed my help? And then the idea that stayed with me was why would an undercover drug investigation need the help of an ordinary Ojibwe girl? Mm. And, you know, then I, I graduated high school, I went on to college, I ended up working for different tribal communities, and I always worked with teens. Um, and I started working out these puzzle pieces like, oh, if it was a federal investigation, oh, if it was something that involved the culture, if she knew science, uh, chemistry, and knew her culture and language, she actually would be the ideal uh, confidential informant. And then what complications would that be for her as an indigenous person to be helping with this type of an investigation? So, you know, her, her distrust from the get-go about this. Um, so yeah, that's how it started. Even though I didn't start writing until I was 44, um, those years between 18 and 44, I was still creating the story though I wasn't writing it. Yeah, and, and I think people think that writing a story is time in front of the, you know, time on the keyboard, and it's not. Um, creating a story, so much happens here. Um, it happens, writing is actually the least of it. Um, so, yeah. And while you were working these things out in your mind, were you taking notes and like sticking them in a drawer or were they just like in file cabinets in your brain? File cabinets in my brain. That's a good way to put it. Like, you know, waiting for my son at hockey practice, dropping off my kids here or there. Um, yeah. And I'd just be like thinking things through and yeah. And is that the only story that you worked on? in that time period or were yes. there other stories this was it no, this was it oh. and when i finished it at 54 and i got an agent and got published at 55 i'm now 56 um i thought well if this is the only story i've got I, i'm fine with that i'm just you know i'm gonna make it as epic as possible and i'm if this is the only story i tell i'm happy with it well, but then one day I was out for a walk. It was a Sunday. I lived in a neighborhood in DC and I was out walking and all of a sudden this character's voice popped into my head and she said, um, I stole everything they think I did and even stuff they don't know about yet. And <laughs> I was like, wait, who is this? And I ran into the nearest place and it was like this um, cheese deli bar restaurant, everything. Yeah, yeah. So I run up to the bar and I go, I, I need a piece of paper and a pen and a Chardonnay. And I just like sat there and did this like stream of consciousness writing this character that was like sitting in a police station covered in blood and like, how did I get here? And honestly, that was the day I felt like a writer when mm -hmm. I knew when I knew I had more than one story in me. Wow. That was, that was a good day. So that was going to be I'll jump ahead. That was going to be my last question. Um, is that a sneak peek at your next book? Yes. <laughs> okay. So if book one was Indigenous Nancy Drew or uh -huh. Indigenous Veronica Mars, uh, book two is Indigenous Lara Croft. Um, mm -hmm. It'll have a new, uh, a different protagonist, mm -hmm. uh, and it's. Um, Instead, Lara Croft, instead of raiding tombs, though, she is reclaiming ancestors to bring back home to Sugar Island from museums and private collectors. And one of her heists goes very badly. Um, so it's it's not a traditional sequel. 
per se, yeah. uh, but it's still set in the same community and you'll see familiar faces. Okay, and um, I forgot what my question was going to be there. Um, <laughs> I had one other question, let's see, in your, in your author's notes, you credit a friend Barb with being a source by saying she would say to you, and I'm assuming this is like she would read your manuscript and she'd say a res girl wouldn't talk like that. Um, can you talk a bit about native vocabulary, nuances of language, things that might or not, that might or might not ring true in the writing and why this is important to the work? Yeah. Um, my, my best friend, Barb, yeah, she like tells it to me straight. And if I write something and she, it doesn't ring true, she'll be the first one to tell me my cousin Deb will be the second one who will tell me, um, you know, and I just trust and, and value them so much. I think in an earlier manuscript that Barb read, um, Donna's told Jamie that she wasn't dancing because she was on her moon time. And, and Barb was like, I'm not going to tell him that, like, you know, <laughs> and, and so that just, yeah, there were some other things too, of things that she revealed to him and, and Barb was like, she's not gonna, you know, she's not spilling her guts to him. And so, yeah, it just, that kind of thing. I mean, if you have those people in your life who are brutally honest with you, Mm -hmm. hold on to them because that's gold and i mean i you know as a writer i think it's important um you know it's important to the work mm -hmm. that you know and to the integrity of the the work that we're working on and so you know how do you expect or how do we as native writers expect non-native readers to navigate those nuances do you think about that? Do you? Um, I, I mostly care what my native readers are thinking, you know, like the people in my community, I, I kind of was writing things, taking out things, you know, and really being guided by what someone in my community might say about a particular aspect of the story. Um, I've been like really pleasantly surprised by non-native readers who can re who relate to different characters in the book and that's that that was something I wasn't expecting as much um I thought you know people would be oh that's interesting but I didn't think they would relate on a personal level the way that they have um and with different characters than what I you know so um yeah yeah cool um, so we have some questions from the audience. Um, one comment first is somebody says our book club loved the relationship of Lily and Donna's. Um, yeah. Do you have anything that you want to say about that relationship? Um, well, I will say that um, my sister, Sarah, was a year and a half younger than me. And she passed in a car accident when she was 29. I was 31. It's she's been gone for 25 years now. Mm. And um, so much of writing um, about the book or writing the book was about me processing grief um, and just, you know, missing this person so terribly, even after 25 years, um, you know, that pain. Um, it doesn't, it changes, but it's still there. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, that's, I, there's a, the way that Lily parallel parks is the way that my sister Sarah would parallel park. And when my parents read that in the book, they were like, ah, yeah, <laughs> we know that's really familiar. Mm -hmm. So just little things like that, that, you know, I, this next question, I picked up the book and read it because of the beautiful cover art. My mm -hmm. librarian said it was actually designed by an Ojibwe artist. Is this true? And what was your involvement 
in the decision making around the cover. And I had the same question about the title. Did you pick the title? Yeah, it was always that was always the title okay. from the first draft. Everything it was. Wow. Yes. Okay. So it then was back that. to the other question about the artwork. The artwork. So um, debut authors generally don't get much say in certain aspects of the book. But um, my publisher has been very good to me, uh, Macmillan, and uh, I'm published under an imprint, uh, Henry Holt Books for Young Readers. And um, they knew that representation was really important to me and so um, that I would prefer uh, an Indigenous artist, preferably Ojibwe, because I just love our beautiful floral um, artwork, the vibrant colors, just the beauty of it. Um, and, and so um, the, the art director for Macmillan found Moses Lunham, who is Ojibwe, and he's from Kettle and Stony Point First Nation in Ontario. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Moses read an earlier version of the manuscript, not the final one. And he came, you know, he and Rich Dees uh, came up with all of, you know, this concept. And I was able to have a little bit of input, but really it was, you know, minor things. Um, so I'm just very thankful that, you know, my publisher saw that value. And um, I think it should be standard. I don't think it should be like best, Kate, you know, um, best practices. I think anytime a person is writing from their lived experience in, in their community, the importance of the art also uh, being represented. And they also, um, I wanted an indigenous narrator uh, for the audiobook, and they were excited about that. And so uh, uh, my book is read by Isabella Starr LeBlanc, who is a stage actress from Minneapolis, uh, and she is Dakota. And just her audition sample was incredible. Her granny June, and she sound Donis. Her Donis sounded the way Donis sounds in my head, okay. and I right from the get go. <laughs> and then because she had a great granny June voice, I was like, "Yep, that's her." Uh, uh, so people can read the book and listen to it. Yes, and we worked really hard on the um, Anishinaabe Moan, the pronunciations. Mm -hmm. So um, if people, uh, if readers are struggling and really want to hear how the words are pronounced, the audio version, the audio book is, is really wonderful. Cool, cool. Um, another audience question, was there a true case where meth was hidden in hockey pucks? No, but there was a true case of a tribal judge um, being involved in protecting a family member's uh, business enterprise. And there was also um, an actual case um, with a young man who felt that if there were going to be drug dealers uh, selling to tribal members, it should a tribal member should be reaping the economic benefits of those dollars. Um, and, and so that justification was helpful reading that case. It was really helpful to me to get into the mindset of how a young person um, might feel that way about justifying um, selling, selling drugs, being involved with uh, drug production in their in their community yeah yeah another question did you consider breaking the book into a series um this person says would love to know more of jamie's backstory and some of the other characters also um well i do have you know books planned and envisioning different um main characters. Um, Jamie's story, I don't know if I could tell that as a young adult story. I, I think I need to tell that one as an adult book um, with flashbacks to his younger, because 
yeah, I, 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 that's how I would tell his story. Um, he's got one. Uh, so, and do you have like notebooks or note cards or what's the, other? there's some word program where people keep notes on the side where you're yes. tracking all of this? <laughs> yes, I do. I do. I keep track of my notes. Now I do a much better job with, um, research and, and note keeping because for book one, I mean, over those 10 years, I'm still finding like scraps of paper and it's like, oh, I meant to include that. I, for, you know, like, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, I'm always coming across a slip of paper. So now I try to be more organized and, um, keep my notes more organized and, and things like that. And did you, have a college like an MFA in creative writing? No, um, I think I had one creative writing class in college, but no, I was a um, psychology and business management major. And then my master's degree is in public administration, uh, political science, um, rather than an MFA. And I kind of felt some imposter syndrome maybe until I realized that, um, I was a storyteller and my training was as a grant writer. And when I realized that every grant that I wrote for any tribal community I worked for, whatever my job title was, I also wrote grants. And the ability to tell a compelling narrative about an issue in your community, why you need the grant money, how you're gonna address it, um, how you know you'll be successful, and to do that in 35 pages, you know, or 40 pages or less, um, that's a skill. And once I thought about my ability to write and I felt validated that my training was different from other writers, but it was no less valid, mm -hmm. um, that, that helped me get over any, um, you know, feeling of missing out on an MFA. Um, it is so wonderful to have a book in which young Anishinaabe women can see themselves as strong, loving, and culturally aware. Thank you so much for a wonderful story filled with varied and realistic people that takes place on a reservation. There you go. Miigwech. Miigwech. Um, the combination compliment and question. Thank you for this incredible book. Teens love your book and it shows that teens do read. My question, we are having a watershed moment right now for indigenous and native representation in books, TV and media. What are your hopes and dreams for native visibility and awareness in a broader sense throughout the country? I, I think um, Standing Rock, I think changed things. Uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline uh, protests, I think, brought a lot of, brought more visibility than ever before um, for, for Native communities and Native people. And, and I think that um, young adult literature, um, just there are so many outstanding Native authors that are, that publishing is paying attention to. We've always had incredible storytellers and, and and authors they just weren't necessarily getting you know the deals or getting noticed um i really hope that you know a book like mine might spark interest in people of well that's one tribe that's one story um there's so many other stories and um so i i just hope that people want more and and realize the differences between communities um like tommy orange's book there there really shed a light on the urban indian experience that people previously had not you know thought about that um my book features a tribe that is doing well economically they have a, a prosperous uh gaming casino and they they give per capita um payments to members and that story had not uh been out there so um i think the more wonderful stories that are out there we get to see different nuances and because there can be no one great native american story because we are not a monolith and um 
you know, we have so much diversity within our communities that, you know, I, it, the answer is more stories, not looking for one singular voice. There's what, 500 some different tribes? 574 at last count. Yep. Different languages, different ceremony, different-, different History, ceremony, history. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let's see, a few questions about language. Would you speak about your own language learning? Like, is English or Ojibwe your first language? And then this person writes, the written form looks so daunting. Are, are Ojibwe children instructed in the written form? No, no. Uh, you know, Ojibwe is best learned um, oral, you know, just hearing it, it's so beautiful when you hear a fluent speaker and just the cadences and that beauty. Um, so my dad was a first language speaker. Uh, he was raised by his great grandmother. And um, so he grew up like his first few years, you know, primarily speaking only the language. And, you know, growing up in Sault Ste. Marie in the 1940s and 50s as a darker skinned Ojibwe man, uh, it was rough. And so um, he joined the Navy. He met my mom, who's not native. And um, he made a decision not to teach us the language. And he since, you know, regretted it and wishes he could have a do over. But he made a loving decision. And that helped me because I was angry. Um, my kids went to a tribal school. And uh, I had one in particular, one of my kids uh, really picked up the language and, and would joke, like tell a joke in the language uh, to the language teacher, Helen Roy. And, um, and I told my dad about it. And he was like, Oh, that's so good. Keep the kids in the language, keep that with them. And I had some resentment, like, I wish I had it to give to my kids. Um, but once you learn more about, uh, you know, gosh, boarding school era and, uh, you know, all of the reasons why uh, things were so difficult and how a person could come to that decision that to protect us, he thought that's what he was doing. So, um, yeah, so I, I love listening to it. Um, I can generally tell what people are saying, but I'm so not confident in speaking it. I just, I'm that generation that, um, you know, hungers for it, but is really um, hesitant and shy to try to say words that, you know, so. So I know that in Duluth, Duluth, Minnesota, there's an immersion school. And from, I believe it's from kindergarten on up, they are learning the language and that there are questions about the, the writing of it. Mm -hmm. you know, is it double vowel? Is it not double vowel? Are we doing yes. syllabics? You know, I mean, it's like a, and we didn't have any of that pre-contact. Yeah. You know? So it's all, it's all new. We're all learning how oh. people knew how to speak it, but people, there wasn't a written language. Well, my dad is still um, upset with me that I opted to go with the double vowel system in the book um, rather than phonetics, because my dad, write, if he writes it down, it's he spells it phonetically. Yeah. Um, yeah. But really, Dr. Margaret Noden from University of Wisconsin, uh, Milwaukee, really made a compelling case for um, using the double vowel system and having that my book would could be a supplemental text in courses about um, mm. you know about the language yeah and you. that really um, was the deciding factor that I did was you know the double vowel system kind of standardizes uh, pronunciation and uh, spellings and so yeah but my dad still thinks I should have done it differently so yeah. Um, a couple more questions here. What are some specific goals you have in seeing this story come alive on screen? And are there any moments you think will be more challenging to portray in a different medium? 
So once it goes to screen. Hmm. I, I'm just thrilled. I'll be thrilled to see it on screen. Um, I'll be an executive producer, but honestly, I don't know what that really means. Um, so I won't be writing for it because I want to write book two and get into uh, you know more writing. Um, I'm just excited because in my mind's eye, I've cast these roles uh, for over 10 years and I have a Pinterest page. <laughs> Funny because I've been working on the book for so long that actors that I originally wanted for certain roles, they're like aged out now. And so, um, but yeah, just the up and coming uh, actors, uh, I'm just excited and hope that the series provides a great opportunity to just showcase uh, native creative talent, you know, not just in front of the camera, but behind it in the writer's room at all levels. And I trust um, Higher Ground to, they share that value. Yeah, yeah. So this next one is actually a two-part question. Um, in your writing, how do you center Anishinaabe ways and values without crossing a line? Um, it talks about um, centering cultural teachings such as plant medicines in the narrative. I, I shared some things. Um, there was one that I shared a plant teaching and it um, there was a student, her name's Destiny Sky Little Pete, and she had a high school science fair project, and that was the choke cherry uh, pudding. And she showed how preparing that pudding in the traditional way, grinding the seeds instead of straining them out, uh, mm -hmm. that's what had the cancer fighting properties. And I, uh, I got a hold of her on Facebook and asked for permission to use. Um, to to have that be Donis's science fair project and give Destiny um, uh, credit in the you know in the acknowledgments yeah and I'm really happy that she you know that she said yes and so you know the things that I shared were things that I felt comfortable sharing I didn't feel that I crossed line I was careful about that. I'm glad that earlier drafts of my book did not get published because I think it was a learning process of knowing, oh, I should not be sharing that. Oh, I should not be telling that story. Um, so I'm, I'm thankful it took 10 years. Ah, okay. And what has been the response at Sault Ste. Marie? Both to the book and to you, like you're, you're a superstar now. Superstar. Well, <laughs> it's it's been so good. Um, I think one thing that helped is that I fictionalized the name of the tribe, and I I I took creative license with some of the aspects of the tribe, and I think that helped it to not be Sioux tribe story. It was uh -huh. you know Sugar Island Ojibwe tribe. Um, I think that helped because I didn't know how to tell a fictional story about my real tribe without it being a documentary or a statement that maybe I wasn't authorized to speak about my tribe in that way. Um, I, you know, so I just, yeah, I, I took creative license with it and I'm glad that I did. Um, everyone's been pretty, the response has been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I did get an early review from someone who is indigenous from, you know, in the Southwest. And they were like, man, those Northern <laughs> natives, they give it all away. Like they tell too much and, you know, and that's, that's valid. Uh, different tribes kind of pull that curtain uh, in different places, you know, more so than others. Um, I felt confident with where I, where I, what I shared and what I didn't, um, so. Somebody wants to know what you're reading now or any other books that you that people should have on their radars. Um, you have okay. time to read. <laughs> I, I try to find I I listen to more audiobooks than I read, mm -hmm. um, but I still find time to to read. Uh, I would say um, 
Cherie Demoline, who wrote The Marrow Thieves, yeah. has a sequel that is just came out or is coming out next week. It's called um, Hunting by Stars. And this is the best perk of being an author. Um, her agent sought out my agent to see if I would read an early copy and provide a book blurb. And I was just thrilled because The Marrow Thieves is one of my favorite books in the world. Oh. And so to be able to read that sequel, um, oh, I, I just, I loved it. I love everything that she writes. Um, you know, Kelly Jo Ford, her Crooked Hallelujah, talk about voice um erica t worth she has this book called um crazy horse's girlfriend and i feel like chapter one should be included in every mfa um program mm. just mm. the way it sets the stage for this story and just yeah um and darcy little badger so yeah she wrote alatsui which i read and loved um, and then she has a new book that's coming out, uh, Snake Falls to Earth, which was just long listed for the National Book Award. And that is just, I'm just so uh, thrilled for her. Um, what an accomplishment. So, yeah. So those are some that other that people here on the Facebook should be looking out for. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited for, um, I haven't, I'm trying to read uh, The Seed Keeper is on my to be read list. And then a book coming out that's called Probably Ruby. Uh, it's by Lisa Bird Wilson. Um, it's coming out in Canada. Um, I, I'm really excited about reading that. So. And then uh, this is a writer's question. So this one must be a writer. How did you find time to write while working a day job? Yeah. And um, words of advice for aspiring writers. Something happened to me in my mid 40s. I've never been a morning person, but in my mid 40s, I started drinking coffee. Um, I started getting up an hour earlier and then it was two hours. And then it, um, my favorite thing was like getting up at 430 in the morning and writing from five o'clock until the very last minute before I needed to catch the Metro to be at my desk in DC by 9.30. Um, and, and I just loved my morning creative. It was when I felt the most creative. And I, you know, so yeah, morning writing for me is the best. Um, and when you wake up with story and you just can't wait to, to get it done. Yeah. Kind of what you're saying is find your writing time, the time yeah. that works best for you, and then right practice a steady, dedicated practice. Yep, yeah. exactly. And I'll say that anyone who um, follows me on Instagram, uh, shoot me a, a, a direct message if you would like a signed book plate. Um, my lighting is really bad, but I have these like little book plates I can personalize it with your name and sign my name awesome. to it yeah so and I'm happy to do that so if if you want a signed book plate just uh pop a message uh on Instagram and let me know your mailing address and any personalization okay any questions that we didn't ask that you were dying to answer we um we need diverse books was an important part of my journey to getting published so I um, was, and their deadline for their mentorship program, I think will be at the end of October. Um, so We Need Diverse Books is a nonprofit organization that believes every child should be seen in a book. And I did a year-long mentorship with um, a young adult author named Francisco Stork, and it was incredible. It really gave me a leg up when I went to get a look for an agent and then my publishing deal um, that was really good exposure so uh, check out we need diverse books and I believe we're working on a fundraiser to set up a native um, a website uh, or a, a program within we need we need diverse books that's for native creatives thank you all for coming so much thank you Angeline great to see you That wraps up our Dakota County Library event with Angeline Bowie. 
Make sure to catch our next Club Book podcast with Chen Julie Wong. Chen Julie Wong is a prominent New York litigator and legal advocate for immigrants and people of color. She chronicles her own trials and traumas as the child of an undocumented Chinese family in the poignant and unflinching memoir, Beautiful Country, which hit shelves in September. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Clubbook possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Clubbook. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Clubbook, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.